Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for your word and its sanctifying work on our hearts, Lord. And we praise you for granting us access to your throne of grace. Oh, Lord, we are so overwhelmed with your kindness. We don't deserve it. You today, Lord, I pray that you would just stir up our affections for you. I pray that your word would produce in us holiness that is evidenced by the happiness and the contentment that we have in you. Jesus, thank you so much for dying for us, for losing your life so that we might have life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, um, I just have the most awesome privilege to share with you guys and to uh, remind you about the purpose and the disciplines of Wellspring this morning. So let's turn over our notebooks once again and take a look at the purpose of Wellspring. It is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Yeah, that is a very high calling, and it's about our hearts. Our hearts, our hearts, our hearts. We cannot talk enough about our hearts. Everything comes from the heart. Matthew 15 tells us that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, and the list goes on, and it's not pretty. And if that's not enough, we have Jeremiah telling us that the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot understand it, but God can, and his word can, because his word is alive. It's living, and it's active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's what the word does. It just cuts us, it examines us, it informs us, it transforms us, and that list goes on. And we need to be reminded of these truths over and over again, which is why, it's one of the reasons why we come together at this ridiculously early time on Saturday morning, <laughs> just have to say that. I think it should be in the middle of the night, really. <laughs> I, it's easier for me to get ready at midnight than 5.30. Anyway, we, we need each other, ladies, and you know that. We need each other. We need God's word to help us to see more clearly so that we are able to live gospel-transformed lives. And gospel-transformed lives don't just happen. We all know that. We need to saturate our minds daily with divine truth, and we all know that there is no shortcut there. In fact, Paul tells us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to hold fast the word of life, to press on toward the goal for the prize, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I have to tell you, there is a reason why I don't run in marathons. Well, no, there's three reasons, actually. <laughs> there's three. One, it's a lot of work. Two, a lot of training. Three, it's a lot of sweating, and I don't like any of them at all. So that is an option for me, that race, and I'm out. I'm not going to run a race like that. But this race that Paul talks about, this is a race that there is no option for us in that. And in fact, it is not a burden, but it's a privilege to run this race. And so how do we do this? How do we run this race, and how do we hold fast the word of life? Discipline one, your heart. In the back of your notebook says, The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. She shepherds her heart worshipfully, reverently toward God. And I love this quote. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty, and the more you will find worship welling up within you. 
So the closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty. In fact, Paul says it like this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. When we hold a Bible in our hands, we are holding the most precious treasure imaginable. And it's not because of the Bible itself or the pages or the version, but it's the words that God himself has said to us. He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of his son, Jesus. It's no mystery. God has made it very, very clear. If he tells us that if we want our minds to think the way he wants us to think, and if we have everything, uh, if we, if we, and we to behave the way he wants us to, we have everything we need in the very words of scripture. And the only way to replace the error of the world's way of thinking is to replace it with God's truth. And the only infallible source of God's truth is his revealed word. Alistair Begg says this, the first thing for our soul's health, the first thing for his glory, and the first thing for our own usefulness is to keep ourselves in perpetual communion with the Lord Jesus and to see that the vital spirituality of our faith is maintained over and above everything else in the world. We want to be useful to the Lord. And if we're going to walk worthy, we've got to know the word of God. We've got to hide it in our hearts. And then by the grace of God, are we able to minister well to those in our homes, which brings us to discipline too. The home, it says the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God. When I was in Wellspring before, and I don't know if we still do this in Wellspring, we were given an exercise to ask a couple of people in our home their assessment of how we were doing in the home. That was not easy for me. I I literally was terrified to ask um, those in my home what they thought, but it was so beneficial to me, and I still to this day remember the reproofs. Um, So I have a question for you. What would those in your home say about you? Would they say that you are shepherding your heart and concern for those in your home? Would they say that you minister to them with your heart fixed on God, on his word? Is your heart fixed on God's word? I will never forget a quote I heard of what Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan. He said, if you cut him, he would bleed scripture. That would be something for someone to say that about us. And just as discipline one is so very critical, discipline two cannot be neglected. I just cannot stress that enough to you ladies. I have seen firsthand the devastation that leapfrogging over the home brings. And I will tell you just a story um, many years ago. I knew several women who were zealous for God, loved his word, loved teaching his word. And in fact, they loved teaching it so much that their care and concern for those outside their home became their main focus and their homes were in ruins. And to this day, the results of their leapfrogging are ongoing and many of those kids have turned away from God and they want nothing to do with Christianity. Some of them are still so angry and bitter that they publicly make known their anti-christ views it is grievous to say the least and i don't want to scare you but the effects well yes i do (laughs) the effects of leapfrogging over your home can be eternally tragic especially when it comes to children john MacArthur says this no environment is more unwholesome for a child than a nominally christian family where parents neglect to provide the proper loving nurture and admonition Many children from such homes end up more hostile to the things of the Lord than kids who have grown up in utterly pagan surroundings. So whether you are married 
with kids, single, married without kids, single with kids. Read God's word worshipfully and reverently and find a time, find a place and a plan to read God's word and read it slowly and carefully. Reread it and reread it. Read it with someone else. Share with someone what you're learning. Memorize it and meditate on it. No matter how you meet with the God of the word, mine the riches of this amazing book that is alive and active. And then there is the ministry, Discipline 3. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. It is a blessing, a blessing, and it is a privilege to step into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. But like I said, it can be devastating to be shepherding those outside your home if you are not grounded in and faithful in the other two disciplines. And I know you ladies know that already, but in all that Paul calls us to what? To present our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Present your bodies, your mind, your soul, present to the Lord all of you, not part of you, but all of you. And I will end on this note. Shepherding your heart will always be a work in progress, a continual process of learning and growing and assessing and reevaluating. I just did that last week of how to shepherd your hearts well. No one has this down to an art. No one ever will. That is not even the goal. The goal is that we bring glory and honor to our Savior in every aspect of our lives as we humbly bring our hearts before him. So I hope that wasn't too long. I'm so windy. Chris Evans, come on up here. I'm going to this. Ooh, a phone and credit cards. Thank you, Barb. I know she loves me, but wow, I just wasn't ready for that. Thank you, Barb, really for sharing those the disciplines with us. I, I think it is so helpful, don't you, to hear the disciplines taught from um, a number of women who, whose aim is not just to understand them, but to live them out. So thanks, Barb. That was really, really helpful. Well, this morning, despite what your schedule says, um, we are going to look at the life of a woman who was known for her wisdom and discretion. She was a woman who was ready to speak truth when truth needed to be heard. So the account of Abigail's life is in 1 Samuel 25, and as part of your homework, you all read that, right? Um, Hopefully you're prepared uh, for this morning. This passage in 1 Samuel 25 is a narrative, and there are some things that we need to know when we're reading a narrative in Scripture, and you have these in your outline. The first one is that we always need to recognize that the character and the hero is always God. It can be tempting to read a passage like this and to merely focus on the characters that God uses, like Abigail. And God obviously does use her, and there's a lot that we can learn from her. That's where we're going to look at her life this morning. But as we read narratives, it's so important that we don't miss the one who is at work through those characters. God is the one at work. God is the one who is faithful to keep his promises. 
he is the one who faithfully works in the lives of those whom he chooses for his purposes. And we're going to see that in the life of Abigail this morning as well as David. <clears throat> and then the second thing that we need to remember is that there obviously are many, many details that are given in any narrative. But there are also many details that are not given. And so we need to be careful that we don't read more into what is written than what we have in the text. We need to be content with the fact that we are given just what we need to know. At the same time, because we are reading an historical narrative, we can't forget that we are reading about real people at real places in a real time in history. And so understanding the historical context will help us to rightly understand the information that is given. So for instance, in this narrative that we read in 1 Samuel 25, we know that it takes place during that transition time of the judges. They do have a king, technically Saul, but overall the people are still doing what is right in their own eyes. And then the last thing that we need to remember is that not everything that is written in a narrative is to be taken as something that we need to apply. Okay, it may simply be telling us what happened. So it may not tell us, for example, if someone is making a good choice or why it is made. It may simply inform us of what the character did. So let's keep these things in mind this morning as we look at our passage. But before we do, I, I want to pray again. Father in heaven, um, it is always good to stop and to remind ourselves and to ask you for help when we come to your word. Father, I, I pray that as we hear your word taught this morning, Father, that our hearts would be humble before you. Father, we know that without you, this would just become a nice story. But Father, it is your word, and you have things that you want to teach us. And so I pray that we would come with a right heart attitude before you, humble beneath your word, asking you to bring it to life to us, to teach us, to convict us where we need to be convicted, and to challenge us, to grow us. Father, we need your help this morning, and so we ask that in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin by reading chapter 25. It's a long chapter, but we're going to read all the way from verse 1 to the beginning of verse 39. So if you haven't yet, if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. Now, as we read, you're going to see the, lo the word Lord used three different ways. So we'll see it with an, a lowercase l when referring to Nabal and also when it refers to David. And in both those references, it simply means master. And then we'll also see it in all uppercase letters when it refers to God. And also, I want to give you a little bit of background to set the context of chapter 25. Now, in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul is king, but that he was disobedient to the Lord. And the prophet Samuel told Saul in verse 23 that because he had rejected the word of the Lord, 
that the Lord had rejected him from being king over Israel. And it tells us that Samuel grieved over the sin of Saul because of his love for God and his love for God's people. Then in chapter 16, God tells Samuel that he has selected a new king and promises to show Samuel who is to replace Saul. And we know that God chose David out of all of the sons of Jesse, and he is anointed as king. And it was the prophet Samuel who anointed David as the next king over Israel. Saul was fueled by jealousy, and he sets out to kill his successor, David. We know from chapter 19 that as David was on the run trying to escape the wrath of Saul, that he went to Ramah. And it tells us in verse 18 that he fled there because Samuel was there. We also know from chapter 12 that Samuel was respected by Israel. It says that they greatly feared him and God as he declared God's truths to them and called them to follow the Lord and to serve him with all their hearts. And it tells us that he was a constant intercessor for Israel, praying daily for them. So now let's pick up in chapter 25, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him, and buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, the fact that all Israel assembled together to mourn Samuel's death tells us that Samuel, that his role as a godly leader and a prophet was recognized by the whole nation of Israel as a blessing. I don't want us to miss the significance of this great prophet's death for all of Israel and for David specifically. David's advisor and confidant has died. And David, along with the nation of Israel, is plunged into grief. It seems that this was a very dark period in David's life. So let's continue reading. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then it gives us some information about him. This man's name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. And then it goes on to tell us what happened while Nabal's sheep were being sheared. David heard in the wilderness that, da that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days we were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore... Let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But 
Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back. And they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword, and about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do. For evil is plotted against our master and against all his household. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. He said to her young men, go on before, excuse me, she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed, bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now, let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgressions of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, 
then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all that he has spoken concerning you and anoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from evil. There is so much for us to learn from from Abigail's life, as well as those who are in her life. So we're going to see this morning how God used Abigail to protect those in her household, as well as David, God's chosen king of Israel. In order to understand the role that Abigail played and how God used her, we need to understand two other people in her life. So the first one is her husband, Nabal. So the first thing that this passage tells us about Nabal is that he was a businessman and that he was very wealthy. Now, most commentators believe that having been a descendant of Caleb, or a Calebite as it tells us in verse 3, meant that he had inherited the land around Hebron, which would have meant that that was the source of his wealth and not necessarily his hard work. Another thing that's important for us to know is that names in the Old Testament often held a greater significance than they do today. The significance of a name often played a bearing on what God was doing in that person's life or often revealed the character of that person. Now, the name Nabal means fool or senseless. And in verse 25, Abigail said of her husband Nabal, For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And we know from reading this passage that Nabal indeed was a foolish man. 
Listen to what scripture says about a foolish person, keeping in mind what we just read about him. Proverbs 14.1 says the fool, and by the way, the, the Hebrew word for fool is the word Nabal. So the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That kind of person is one who is full of pride. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 28.26 says he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Isaiah 32.6 says for a fool speaks nonsense and his heart inclines toward wickedness to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord to keep the hungry person unsatisfied and to withhold drink from the thirsty. Now the text also shows us that Nabal was harsh. He was unkind. He was deceptive, selfish, worthless, a drunkard, arrogant, and unreproachable. And he was evil in his doings. And not just occasionally, but the idea is that it was his practice, it was his habit. And what was the source of these evil dealings? Barb reminded us of that this morning. It was his heart. Those evil dealings were an overflow of his heart. So that gives us a glimpse into the kind of man that Nabal was on a heart level. Now, this foolish prideful man had a wife whose name was Abigail. Let's look at how this passage describes her. Verse 3 tells us that she was intelligent and she was beautiful in appearance. She was intelligent. Now the word used here means more than what we would tend to think of when we think of the word intelligent. It means goodness or having desirable or positive qualities. It means to be prudent or sensible. Other versions of the Bible translate this word intelligent in verse 3 as wise, having good understanding, or discerning. And we know from verse 33 that David recognized Abigail's discernment. So, think about how this passage describes this husband and this wife. We read about a beautiful, wise woman, and she is married to an evil, foolish man. How can a woman in such difficult circumstances honor God? We're going to see that. It's going to become clear as we continue. Now, you might be thinking, how did these two end up married? Well, there are some things that we need to understand about that culture in which Abigail lived. Abigail lived in a time where marriages were arranged. Oftentimes, the best women, for example, the most beautiful, were given to wealthy men. And not only was Abigail in what had to have been a very challenging, difficult marriage, but she also had no children. Now, in that culture, there was a lot of shame tied to being childless. What a challenging life for Abigail. 
Now, remembering the significance that names often held in the Old Testament, again, revealing the character of that person, I want to point out the meaning of Abigail's name. Where we saw that Nabal's name meant fool, Abigail's name meant cause of joy. And we'll see how that indeed did reveal her character. Now, the other person that we need to look at is David. <clears throat> this glimpse into David's life at this point in time, in this chapter, helps us to see so clearly how we must never neglect to shepherd our heart, to watch over it with all diligence, understanding how weak we can become when we are not determined, focused, on putting our trust in God in every circumstance of our life. We see in so many other places in Scripture that David knew how to guard his heart. We see that in chapter 23, when Saul was set on killing David. We see um, the men of Kali were, go were going to deliver David to Saul. What did David do there? He escaped. He didn't retaliate. He just ran from the evil plotted against him. And then in chapter 24, we see that Saul continued to hunt down David with the purpose of putting him to death. And what did David do in that long-lived trial? He trusted God and he guarded his heart from doing evil. We also see that when David and his men were hiding in a cave, and then Saul entered that cave. Do you remember that situation? Verse 3 of chapter 24 describes what a vulnerable position Saul was in. David could have seen that as the perfect opportunity to end his life of running and the constant threat to his life. And to make it even more challenging, we see in the very next verse that even David's own men encouraged him to take matters into his own hand. But though the Lord had anointed David as king, he refused to harm Saul because he knew that it wasn't his place to raise a hand against Saul. David was trusting God to avenge him. So that's how we find David guarding his heart right before this chapter. Now let's look at what happens right after this encounter. Let's jump ahead to verse 26. In verse 1, we see that the Ziphites betrayed David. And what did David do? He just goes. He leaves. Again, there is no retaliation. And then we find David in another opportunity to end Saul's life and with it the threat to his own. David came to the place where Saul was camped and David found Saul and his men asleep. And do you recall what was right there near Saul? There was a spear in the ground right next to Saul's head. And Abishai, who was with David, tried to persuade him to end Saul's life. By telling him in verse 8, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Therefore, please let me strike him with a spear. But David shows his fear of the Lord and his trust in him when he said, The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. 
But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. And David walked away. So again, we see evidence that David knew how to guard his heart well and how to trust God with his plan rather than taking matters into his own hand. David chose to stay on the run in hiding rather than sin against God. David had great restraint and self-control. He was willing to wait on and trust in God's perfect timing. David was a man who later on in history would be known as a man after God's own heart. So now, inserted between all of these accounts, we find in chapter 25, David and his men in the wilderness of Paran, protecting Nabal's sheep and shepherds from tribes that might come in and try to steal the livestock or bring harm to the shepherds who were watching over those sheep. David's character is revealed as we see his humility to work, to serve others, Though he was the king, he was God's chosen king, in order to provide for his needs and the needs of the men who were with him. It was because of David and his men that Nabal's sheep prospered. And so, according to the custom of that day, at the time the sheep were being sheared, it was common for the owner of those flocks to set aside a portion of the profit that he made and to give it to those who had protected his flocks and the shepherds while they were out in the, in the fields. Now, sheep shearing in that culture was a very festive time. It was also known for a time of being very generous with others. So David and his men had been faithful in watching out for Nabal's, shep, uh, uh, Nabal's flocks. And so when, Nabal heard, um, when David heard that Nabal's sheep were being sheared, he reasoned that he would be paid generously for his work. It was not at all unreasonable then for him to ask Nabal to respond kindly to him. So we see in verse 5 that David sent 10 men to remind Nabal of how he, he had profited because of David and his men and to ask Nabal for whatever payment he thought was appropriate. And then they were to bring it back to David. So let's look again at verses 5 through 9. So David sent ten young men and told them, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. So David's request through his servants showed the epitome of courtesy. Greeting Nabal was the same as giving a blessing. He instructed the men to ask for payment in a very respectful manner. He didn't demand a certain amount, 
but he left it up to Nabal's discretion. And even referring to David as your son was the sign of respect. It showed that he he esteemed Nabal because of his position of authority, kind of like an employee to his boss. So it seems here that David truly was trusting God to provide for him and his men through Nabal. So now in that culture, Nabal had the choice of how generous of a gift he wanted to give to um, David and to his, um, his men. So at the very least, he should have given them at least bread and water, which although would not have been a very generous gift by any means, um, it would have at least been somewhat acceptable. However, in spite of David's job well done and his humble approach, Nabal not only refused any payment for David and his men, but his response was insulting. He chose to return evil for good. Let's look again at Nabal's response to David's men in verse 10. Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? In his response, Nabal accused David of being an insignificant man, a runaway slave rather than God's chosen king of Israel. Nabal offended David by treating him as a rebel whose request was unworthy of any kind of consideration. Nabal's attitude was lofty and self-centered. He withheld what was rightly due David. Now, think about that in light of what we're told about Nabal in verse 2. He was a very rich man. He had the means to give David and his men a very generous gift for their services. And yet, he was unwilling to even recognize their care from which he benefited, unwilling to provide for them even the very basics of bread and water. And he justified his own greed by pleading ignorance. This disrespectful act of ignorance of David was surely a cover. The knowledge of this young king-elect was widespread. It seems that Nabal pretended not to know about him in order to excuse his unwillingness to do what was right. And there are at least two things in the passage that help us to see that. In verse 10, Nabal said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? So it seems that Nabal at least knew who David's father was. And we read that Abigail clearly understood David's, uh, God's call on David's life. So it's hard to imagine how she, as a woman in that culture, could have known that. And yet her powerful, wealthy businessman husband did not. So now let's look at David's response. In verse 22, we see that David is set on avenging this wrong. In verse 13, he said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. 
and about 400 men went up behind David. Now, we know what 400 men with swords intend to do. David here is acting impulsively and actually resolved in his heart to murder and take his own vengeance. What happened? Does this sound like the David we read about in the cave who spared Saul's life and prevented others from killing Saul even when they had the perfect opportunity to do so? Does this sound like David who during his fight with the, ins- the, with the insulting giant Goliath thought only of the honor of the living God? It was sinful pride for Nabal to withhold any kind of recognition for the service that he received from David and his men. But David, the remarkable man of God who modeled patience for years under the unjust treatment of Saul, seems to have lost sight of God's promises here and the need to guard his heart. And we know that doesn't just happen to David, does it? It certainly appears that David had anger burning in his heart because it wasn't just enough for him to get even by taking the life of Nabal, as bad as that would have been, but his plan was to take the life of all the men in Nabal's household. Remember, he had 400 men with him. David wanted Nabal's entire household to be utterly destroyed. That would have included skilled workers and shepherds as well as extended family members. They weren't all guilty of pridefully withholding from David. Yet it doesn't seem like David is even taking that into consideration. What does this tell us about David's heart? What does it tell us about our own hearts. Outside pressures, circumstances that catch us off guard, oftentimes reveal an area of weakness, showing us where our trust in God is weak. And when our hearts are left unguarded, we are vulnerable to all kinds of sin. Isn't this true for all of us? We may have found that yesterday we were in a good place. And we may find that again tomorrow we're in a pretty good place. But there could be something that blindsides us in the very next circumstance that we face today. And so we must prepare for that now. With all that we've learned about the heart in Wellspring. Doesn't this just remind us of how much we need God's word for the purpose of knowing him so that we are ready to trust him when the circumstances of life catch us off guard? Why? Because we live in a mixed condition. We are all capable of trusting in God one minute and then turning from his ways the next. It is sobering to read this passage to see what our hearts are all so capable of. But it is also encouraging as we see God's persevering grace 
in turning David back from this sin by using two people, an unnamed servant of Nabal's and Abigail. So let's first look at the young man of Nabigail's of Nabal's household. I want us to see the wisdom that he displayed by his choice in going to Abigail with the information that he received. So let's read what the young man told Abigail. Starting in verse 14. The young men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master, against your husband, and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. This young man knew his master, Nabal. He knew that he was a foolish man. And he also knew that his own life was at stake as a part of Nabal's household. And so he demonstrated great wisdom in his decision in going to Abigail to tell her of David's care over the flocks, of Nabal's greed in withholding from David, and of David's evil plan of revenge. If this servant had not gone to Abigail, she would have been totally unaware of the situation, and therefore she would not have had an opportunity to intervene. Now, Abigail had choices to make. She could have done nothing. She could have allowed her challenging circumstance to distract her from doing what was right. Remember how she described her husband. She told David that he was worthless, that he was foolish. If she had done nothing, she would have been rid of an evil husband and out of a very difficult marriage. But Abigail did the exact opposite. Instead of sitting back and letting the harm he deserved come to him, she took action to protect her foolish husband and her household. Proverbs 31.12 tells us that an excellent wife brings her husband good and not harm all the days of her life. It does not say that she does it if he deserves it. Abigail also could have ignored the danger that David was in, as future king of Israel. She could have chosen not to protect him from sinning, but she didn't ignore it. A discerning woman is concerned to view things from God's perspective and to respond in a way that honors God. Abigail protected her husband and David, not because they warranted it, but because it was what honored God. And she lost no time in doing it. She didn't give herself time to fall into the temptation to sinfully respond or to be lazy in responding. But we see that she acted quickly in doing what was right. Because remember, there is someone else who is acting quickly. David, he had 400 
armed men ready to slaughter this entire household. Abigail wasn't acting impulsively, but rather she shows great wisdom in acting quickly. Look again at verses 18 and 19. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So we see Abigail quickly gathering the food that was already prepared for this festival of sheep shearing. She displayed wisdom in sending the men ahead of her to soften David's heart and to cool his anger so that her words of truth would be received. Now, you might be wondering, why did Abigail not tell her husband? Now, we don't know. Because scripture doesn't tell us. This is where it's important for us to remember that this is a narrative portion of scripture. It just tells us what happened. However, I think it seems reasonable to conclude that Abigail kept this from her husband, not out of a motive of deception, but for the purpose of protecting him and her household. Proverbs 31.27 tells us that an excellent wife looks well to the ways of her household. I believe she acted in wisdom, knowing that it would bring glory to God and good to many. I believe Abigail was concerned about her household, about protecting God's honor, and removing a stumbling block from David. Why do I think that? Well, let's remember what this chapter tells us about Abigail. First, it describes her as intelligent and discerning. We know that the servant appealed to Abigail when Nabal responded so badly and was unapproachable, implying that he knew her to be approachable and wise and concerned for the welfare of her household. He ends his appeal with the words, Now therefore know and consider what you should do. And we know that Abigail acted in a moment of great danger and peril to her household, as well as to David in the role to which God had ordained him. And we know that later, David blessed God, Abigail's discernment, and Abigail herself, for her intervention. We also know that Abigail did tell Nabal what she had done later when he was sober the next day. I believe that that shows us that her intent was not to deceive him. We know that Abigail spoke with great humility. She spoke truth and that she acted with great courage in the face of two men who were in sin both her husband and David. And it appears that sitting back and doing nothing, waiting for the Lord to intervene, would have been wrong. It would have been failing to do good and to prevent evil when it was within her power to act. 
It appears that from Abigail's perspective, she was bound to do what she could to avert the tragedy and that she reasoned that David was more likely to be influenced by a biblical appeal since no one can speak to Nabal. So verses 21 and 22 show Abigail going to meet David and we find David and his men coming toward Nabal's household and listen to what was on David's mind. Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. (coughs) May God do to the enemies of David and more, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. It seems that David actually regretted doing what was right that he regretted giving good care to Nabal's shepherds. From his perspective, it seems that he saw doing good was a waste of time, as having no good purpose, and he was determined to get revenge. Where was David's focus now? It certainly wasn't on God and trusting him in his ways. Rather, it was set on the one who offended him. I think we all recognize the danger in that. And so Abigail goes up to meet David. And let's look at her response starting in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, and I think this that it's interesting that this is one of the longest discourses in the Bible given by a woman. It is full of wisdom and good theology. And I think it's a great example of how someone can appeal to someone, um, especially someone in authority. She said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you. And listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood, And from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against the Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. For the Lord will certainly make for you an enduring household. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you all your days. So Abigail comes as a godly woman ready to speak truth to David. And she is the only one recorded who does speak truth to him. So let's look again and observe her godly character and her powerful message. What do we see? And these are in your outline. First, 
we see the honor shown to David in verse 23. Abigail's dismounting in the presence of David shows that she saw him not as a runaway slave, but as a superior. It was the highest demonstration of respect that could be given in that culture. It communicated that she recognized and respected David as God's chosen king of Israel. Bowing herself to the ground would have shown David her attitude, that she was coming to make full amends for the disrespect shown him by her husband. We also see wisdom as Abigail makes a a gentle, gracious appeal to David to redirect his focus away from his offender in verse 25 when she said, please do not pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. She helped David to see God's protection of him. We see that in verse 26, when she told David, the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood by avenging yourself by your own hand. Abigail acknowledged the offense and sought to right the wrong that was committed against him by bringing a very generous gift for David and his men. We see that in verse 27. And in verse 28, Abigail said, please forgive the transgressions of your maid servant. Abigail took the blame. She did what Nabal was unwilling to do. She humbled herself before David. Abigail sought to take every obstacle out of the way in order to put David's focus back on the Lord, reminding him to leave it to God to fight his battles. The sixth thing we see is that Abigail declared with certainty the things that were true about the Lord in his protection of David. We see that in verses 29 through 31. She continues to point him to God. She encouraged David to look forward and to think about why he will be glad that he turned away from this sin. And then number seven, we see in verse 32, how truth diffused David's anger. He first blessed the Lord, and then he recognized that it was God who sent Abigail. She was God's chosen messenger to speak God's truth. Abigail was ready to speak truth when truth needed to be heard. This account ends in verses 36 through 39 with Abigail going home. When Nabal was sober, she told him all that had happened. And it says his heart died within him. And 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Look at verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, and notice the change of heart and focus. Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. 
The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. God protected David and proved to him once again that he could be trusted to deal with a foolish man. This was a gracious reminder to David as he would soon be dealing again with Saul. David was reminded that he didn't need to take vengeance when evil was returned for good. And God chose to use a wise, faithful, discerning, approachable, courageous woman living in very difficult circumstances to put David's focus back on God and on God's trustworthiness. Abigail was God's chosen, humble servant who was willing to speak truth when it needed to be heard. Now, I want to end this morning with just some thoughts for you to consider. I'd like for you just to listen. These are written in your homework, and you can go to them later um, so that you can just consider them, really think about them throughout the next couple weeks. The first thing I want you to think about is, is it possible that God used marriage to a foolish, harsh man to teach Abigail how to make a humble, gentle appeal that would prepare her to someday appeal to David, the future king of Israel, to protect him from sin that would have had great consequences. Are you willing to trust God with the circumstances that he has placed in your life, trusting in his wisdom, knowing that he causes all things to work together for your good and for his glory? And what will you do now so that you will be able to guard your heart and strengthen your trust in God where it is weak. And do you know where you are prone to get blindsided and thrown off guard? How can you prepare for that now? How can you be thinking as a discerning woman so that your thoughts are aligned with God's thoughts so that you will respond to your circumstances in a way that honors God. Ladies, may we grow in discernment as we care for our hearts and seek to honor God in all our circumstances of life. Let's pray. Father, we want to be women who are concerned for your glory. We pray that that would be the greatest desire of our heart in every circumstance that we face. Father, we know that we are weak, and so we ask for your help. Help us to be diligent, to guard our hearts, to continually keep watch over them, and to plan for those things that might catch us off guard. Father, 
Father, would you please help us to fight against the temptation and not allow hard circumstances to distract us from doing what is right. And Father, I pray that we would be women who are willing to speak the truth and that we would be women who are willing to receive it. Father, we plead with you to make us women of discernment so that our actions and our lives would bring you the honor that is due your great name. And it is in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.